The Security Conversations podcast is presented by Bishop Fox, a leader in penetration testing, security assessments, and red teaming. Learn more about our services at bishopfox.com. Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, my guest today is Thomas Tachek, uh, one of the most outspoken members of the security industry and one of the people I call institutional memory. Uh, how are you, Thomas? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ryan? Why are you laughing? You are one of the most outspoken people around, which is a no, good thing. Was... You know, I've always <laughs> given you grief for not speaking enough or not blogging more. Or... That's a very diplomatic way of putting it, but thank you very much. Uh, we ran into each other the first time uh, in your days at Matasano Security, which you co-founded with Dave Goldsmith, Jeremy, and uh, some of the New York City guys. Matasano was then uh, acquired by NCC, and you moved on. One of the things I'm interested in bringing you on the podcast to talk about is uh, security staffing and just trying to find people. Your new company, Latacora Security, is kind of a for-hire security team for startups, so a startup will come to you. Well, let me let you explain it. What is Latacora? What do you guys do? Sure. The, the, the joke we make when we talk about Latacora is that Latacora is like Matusano, since basically most of the people that started Matusano and were doing another services company. Um, I guess the, 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 simple, the simple description of what we're doing is that we're like Matusano, except for two big differences. Um, one being we only work with startups. Um, so we exclusively work with, you know, like tech companies building new products because those are the people that we like working with most at Matasana. We like working with everybody because I'm you know, being recorded, but those are the people we like working most with. Um, and the other major difference between us and a typical security consultancy is that um, most consultancies will come in and do projects, like a two-person, two-week web penetration test or something like that. And our minimum engagement is six months. Um, so we basically, we join on your team like full-time members of your team. Essentially, we take over security for your startup. We build and manage a security practice for your startup. And then, you know, after we're done six, six months to a year later, um, you know, we'll recruit somebody full-time to come in and run that practice full-time for you. Um, and you'll have the benefit of basically hiring somebody into a functioning security practice rather than kind of doing everything from scratch with a new hire that you don't necessarily know how to hire. That was a longer description. I should be able to do that description better for my own company, but whatever. No, that was good. But so the sweet spot is tech startups that haven't yet matured or obviously they're brand new. So they their security thinking is limited. You come in, you, you're the security team for six months to a year and basically help them build the program, ramp it up, and then you help them find a replacement or yeah, your we'll replacement. Them, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll help them recruit somebody into it. It's one of the things that we, it's one of the things that we think we're pretty good at is security recruiting. So it's a way of giving people access to that kind of security recruiting ability. Um, a thing to keep in mind is that even pretty big startups, most startups don't have security teams. Um, it's pretty unusual for a startup to have a security team. Even if you've got, you know, 10 to 20 full-time engineers on staff, you're still at a point where most startups don't have security teams. It's expensive and tricky to hire security. So it's another reason we thought this would be an interesting thing to do would be to, you know, give companies that wouldn't ordinarily have security teams access to, you know, an actual security team. That's a bold statement to say you're good at tech recruiting um, because it, it there, and this is why I wanted you on the podcast, it, there's a big disconnect between a bunch of people saying, I'd love to get into the security industry and looking at numbers that we have a massive skill shortage. Is it that we're not recruiting properly? Is it we're not training people properly? 
Yes, it's that we're not recruiting people properly. We don't train people well either, um, but I don't think that's the bottleneck. I think we suck at recruiting. Okay, so tell me, what does is, what is good recruiting look like? Um, so that's a, that's a big question, right? So I, uh, it, it's easier for me to say what it doesn't look like, right? Okay, so, so let's start there because I, and I, wanted, I want to narrow, narrowly take it in the direction of uh, specific recruiting for security talent. Well, so we have this problem in security where when we're um, when we're talking to people, when we're talking to candidates as hiring managers, um, when we're trying to make decisions about whether to bring somebody on our team, the very first thing that we do as an industry with most candidates is to look at their resume, right, is to get some sense of what their previous experience is. And then a lot of us tend to treat the recruiting process as a competition to see if we can like to look for the best possible resumes that we can add to our team. And you know, we just we had the experience when we were over the 10, 12 years that we were running Matasano. We had it's ten um, over the 10, 10 or so years we were running Matasano that that approach just did not work very well for us. That you know, if you have unlimited funds, um, if you're Google essentially, then you can view recruiting successfully as a resume competition and just look for people who are simultaneously really well credentialed and also who can survive a gauntlet of kind of dehumanizing painful programming tasks in your interview process. And you'll build a really good security team doing that because there are those people that exist that you can you know staff up with and you're paying top dollar. So you're always going to get access to whatever class of people that you want, right? But for most of us, we're not running you know, security practices or companies where we have unlimited funds for these people that we're, we can outbid any possible competitor. Um, and so we're kind of like the, the, the strategy that we expect to have work there of just looking at resumes and getting, you know, really good talent in, you know, the very best talent in this industry, as you kind of alluded to when you asked me the question, right? Like there's a perceived skill shortage in the industry. Well, really there's a there's a shortage of people with good resumes in the industry, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to their skills or, you know, their people's skills or their aptitude or anything like that. So, um, you know, I, I would say the big problem that we have is by and large, we're hiring for credentials and experience and not ability or aptitude. And so good recruiting is, is based on, you know, looking for people with actual ability and actual aptitude. Those are intrinsic qualities of candidates. They're not things that are signaled on pieces of paper. Um, and I think as an industry, we do a terrible job of doing that. And so, you know, we have a skill shortage because we restrict ourselves exclusively to people that have resumes that demonstrate that somebody already did this job successfully for several years before they started it. And we had a lot of luck throwing that rule book away and, you know, doing our own. Um, that was basically the Matasano kind of hiring thesis. We ran that for, for about six years and it was super successful for us. And that's kind of, um, I think that's one take on what better hiring looks like is the way we were doing things there. So there are two things there that I want to dig deep, a little deeper on. One, one is the resume. The, you're suggesting there's a problem on the other side where just people just don't know to write a resume? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that <laughs> I, there's there are like long running. Or we don't know how to read the resumes, or we we we're we're reading resumes in a very narrow myopic way. Yeah, I mean, so I guess it's there. There are people that we joke about as being incredibly skillful in the industry. That are people that are like renowned talents in the industry that also have terrible looking resumes and basically terrible career management skills. So I don't think it follows that if somebody has a good resume, they're necessarily you know one of the better people in the industry. A lot of really great people, if you know who you're looking for, are you know terrible like kind of representing themselves in job interviews and writing resumes for themselves. But the bigger problem is that we look at resumes at all. I would say that you know any hiring process that really takes resumes into account 
you know, as a major factor at all, is basically fundamentally broken. Um, so I would advocate for resume blind hiring, for, you know, doing what you can. Like, I, 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 I buy the value of, like, reference checking. Um, you know, I, I guess it's useful to know if somebody's actually worked, you know, in your field before. But generally, I think that, at least in terms of technical qualification, I think it's important to kind of under like, to break apart what recruiting is into like the different steps that it involves and what those processes are. But for technical qualification, I think we shouldn't be looking at resumes at all. What should what should be what what should should be the first entry point into the company then? You're saying that as a hiring manager, when I have an incoming candidate, what's the right? First we're thing talking that about two different at? things. We're talking about two different things. One is like targeted recruiting, and one is the the hiring manager doing the traditional post a job on LinkedIn or Indeed or wherever they're posting the jobs. And the resume is the first entry point. The resume is the initial knock on the door. Well, let me let me let me do this. Let me like kind of I can outline both the hiring process that we're using now, but also what we did at Matasano and what I yeah. thought was really successful for us. So I can just do that, like run through that. So like the basically the the, the approach that we the process that we ran at Matasano was um, we post job descriptions in some very limited places. Like for instance, on the Hacker News hiring threads, um, we had a lot of job posts and we had a lot of candidates in from that. But we also, we ran outreach programs like um, our Crypto Pals challenges started as a, um, you know, as a recruiting you know, tool for us. Um, we did micro-corruption, which is a CTF that we ran. Those are outreach mechanisms, right? Like those are ways to get yourself in front of, not just get yourself out in front of as many people as possible, but to kind of, you know, kind of aim and target your outreach at a community of people where the average person who applies because they were playing microcorruption or because they were doing the crypto challenge is likely to be somebody I'm interested in talking to, right? So for us, it started with, you know, an outreach process. And then people would write to us. We, we were kind of, at Montesano, we were small enough that we weren't looking to hire hundreds of people. And so we kind of let people signal to us that they were interested in working with us. We didn't have like a link that you pushed, you know, pushed on our website to apply for a job or whatever, at least for the CTFs and for the crypto challenges and stuff. There was no direct link. You had to actually, you know, take the initiative to tell us that you were interested in a job. And then the very first thing that would happen after you did that, after you mailed us, you know, mailed careers at monosano.com and said, or even info at monosano.com and said, I'd be interested in working here, is we'd get on the phone with you. We, I got on the phone with, you know, I don't know, many, many tens of people. And we'd spend a half an hour talking to pretty much everybody that was credibly interested in working with us, um, just explaining the job, the company, um, and what our hiring process was, but not teching people out at all. The very first thing that we would do with a candidate that reached out to us and expressed any interest in, any interest in working with us is we'd get on the phone with them. Um, and the very first thing we would say on those, those first phone calls was, that it wasn't a phone screen, that there was no, um, you know, there was no technical qualification, nothing you could say to us on that call, um, you know, short of cursing us out, was, you know, going to affect your possibility of getting a job with us. And what we would do is we would run through the details of the job and the details of our hiring process. And at the end of that call, um, you know, after we confirmed that the candidate's still interested in working with us, I kind of gently prod them about, um, you know, how comfortable they were with the different technical subjects that we work with in the company, right? Like, so web application testing or, um, you know, auditing C code for vulnerabilities. And if the candidate kind of expressed any concern about how comfortable they were with those, you know, with those subjects, what we would do is we had a couple of books that we really liked. So the Web App Hackers Handbook is one of those books for web application security. It's probably the best web pen testing book 
or, um, you know, uh, the <laughs> Mark Dowd's book. Uh, I should know off the top of my head what the title the of the book of, is. The Art of Software Security <laughs> Assessment. Yeah. Yeah, this is the podcast where I forget the art of software security. It's been awesome. But well, so we had these books that we liked, and what we would do is we would just send people copies of the books, which also kind of blew candidates away. People kept talking about how awesome we were because we would send them copies of these books when really books for us were cheap, especially compared to the value of a you know a good recruit or whatever. I don't know why everybody doesn't do this, but um, and we do it here at Latacora now too. Um, but. So if, if, if a candidate told us that they were not super comfortable with what we were interviewing on, I, th I feel like the normal reaction in the industry would be to say, okay, well, come back to us when you're comfortable. And our reaction was, okay, here's a whole system that we've devised to make you comfortable with this, including we'll send you at our expense material to, you know, train yourself up on it. And then, you know, we gave them exercises to work on. And then when they felt comfortable, they'd come back and they'd interview with us, right? So... That was the first thing that we did in our process after people reached out to us. And then in terms of actually doing the technical qualification, I think that we did things pretty differently from a lot of other shops there too and in very important ways. So the first thing is we did phone screens and we like we had phone interviews with candidates where we'd like send candidates to talk to consultants on our team. Um, and we did them because our consultants wanted to. They all felt like they wanted to be empowered and talking to candidates and have some exposure to them. Like At least in the general abstract sense, people wanted to do phone screens. The interesting thing that we did with the phone screen responses, with the like results that people wrote up from our phone screens, is that we threw them away um, because phone screens are worthless. Um, you don't learn anything about a candidate from a phone screen. Um, people feel like they've learned a lot about candidates from doing phone-based interviews, or at least they feel like they've learned about, a lot about them technically. But really, um, we found that they weren't learning anything at all about them. And the reason that we like we felt like that we learned that was the next step in our process, which was um, it's an idea that um, you know my wife Erin and Corey Scott came up with um, at Matasano, which was we were having issues where um, you know we were bringing people onto the team that interviewed really well. But when it came time for them to go into actual engagements and get testing done, um, you know, the work styles were not kind of what we expected. The results on those tests weren't exactly what we expected, right? Um, and we, we wanted some better way than like just, you know, beyond just verifying that people know what they're talking about, that they actually enjoyed doing the work that we were actually doing. And so the solution that they came up with um, to do that was we give candidates an actual challenge. Um, I think giving candidates challenges is a lot more normal now than it was 10 years ago, but whatever. So we, we gave candidates basically technical challenges that they would do on their own time. Um, and what we learned after doing that for maybe just a couple of months was the signal that we were getting off of technical challenges was so much better than the signal that we were getting off of any other technical qualification that we were doing um, that it seemed kind of silly that it was just kind of a, you know, a, it was kind of like a reference check beforehand, right, when we first introduced it, right? It was just a way of verifying that somebody that interviewed well that we liked would actually be able to do the job. What we moved to was a system where that set of challenges that we gave candidates was basically the deciding say on whether a candidate was technically qualified. Well, let me cut you there. So, did you run sure. into issues? Did you run in, and I'm, I'm talking to folks about that, that are doing technical challenges as well and putting people through the ringer. Did you run into issues where it lengthened your time to hire uh, negatively at all? No, I, ironically, well, so when I took over recruiting at Matasano, it's probably in year three or four of Matasano, I, 
at the time, we would have said our two biggest problems, our second biggest problem was we weren't super happy with the volume of candidates with the top of our recruiting funnel, right? We wanted more candidates, so we were having a hard time. We were waiting too long to hire people because we just didn't have enough people applying. And the most important problem that we felt we had at the time was that we were taking too long to make decisions. Um, you know, that candidates were dissatisfied with how long things were taking, that our decision process was like several months long in some cases. Somebody wrote a negative glass door review about us at some point, and it really kind of set us off. We were right, worried but, about that. But doesn't adding challenges to it even make that worse? It did the opposite for us. So, so explain that. Well, what, what, what I think we learned was that a lot of the delay there was about uncertainty. Um, was about us not like you know not being ready to pull the trigger when you're um, you, you know in a kind of a traditional kind of moving in a in a traditional hiring process where it's like phone screen then on site you know interview and then decision right well moving from phone screen to on site interview involves a decision that removes optionality from you right like. You, you, a lot of these decisions are kind of implicitly about optionality. It's about like, well, I have you know room in my schedule to move maybe one or two people from phone screen to on-site interview. So I want to kind of wait and see whether the right candidates are like whether I'm bringing the right person in for an interview. Maybe this next candidate that I talk to, and then like anytime you have any kind of scheduling or logistics stuff, that just intrinsically adds more time. Plus, you have to wait for the right consultant to get on the phone with the phone screen and all that stuff. Um, and the technical challenges were fire and forget. Right, new candidate comes in, we literally we just push the button. Okay. Well, they get the web challenge right now. Beep, then the web challenge is up, and then we just wait for the response, right? And once you've, more importantly, once you've done the challenges that we've done, and we've scored those challenges, like really importantly here, right? Our challenges had a scoring rubric. They came down to a numeric score. In fact, it came down to a one to five score. I think like people sometimes hear that and think that's a really sounds really simplistic, but for us. You know, each of those challenges was scored one through five. And if you had, you know, a three or above on both of those or a four on either of them, we felt like you were technically qualified, that we'd want to interview you. We want to meet you in person. And so the experience of just being able to read a report on somebody and then make a quick decision about whether to bring in somebody to interview cut down time immensely for us. Also, when you've decided that you've technically qualified somebody, the interview process gets a lot simpler too, right? Like you can go talk to them about the job and make sure they're a fit in terms of how you work and what their working style is and all that. But you don't have to spend a lot of time with weird interview questions trying to kind of read tea leaves about whether somebody's qualified to do the work or not, right? Because you already had a process that ran and decided this person, if you put them on a consulting project, would probably be able to do the work really well, or in some in some cases do the work a lot better than we realized that we were doing, right? Like we had a lot of surprise answers on our challenges, right? And we like we met a lot of people with no resume whatsoever that crushed us on some of those challenges, right? So um, you know, once we once we got um, once we got comfortable with and confident in the results from those challenges, it was a lot easier to make decisions and to move really quickly on candidates. So, yeah, for us, our experience was it drastically cut the amount of time that we were taking to hire people. And it was like, that was something we were paying a lot of attention to at the time. But you were also hiring for a very specific skill set uh, on, on a smaller scale. Does this approach, do you believe this approach scales to bigger organizations that, let's say, someone, we're, we're, we're going to move to the cloud. We need to add security talent or engineering team, uh, does that scale this approach to uh, uh, doing away with resumes and heading straight into the challenges and speeding up the process? Does it scale for a big organization, do you think? Well, I think there's two questions there, right? Like, does it scale in terms of moving from a hiring tempo of tens of people, uh, you know, per quarter to hundreds of people per quarter? I think it scales well in terms of, new, like, numeric scaling, right? Especially because a lot of it is effectively automated. Um, 
the first question you asked is, does it like we were, you know, we were hiring for a fairly specialized role. That's de it's definitely the case that you know, whatever role you're hiring for, you have to devise what are called work sample challenges, right? Like you have to devise work sample challenges that are specific to that role. You mentioned cloud stuff. We actually, at Lottacora, we do a lot of cloud security stuff. Like when you take over security for startups, you're essentially doing a lot of AWS security work. Right. So, and we're hiring right now. So we had to come up with, you know, an AWS specific set of work sample challenges, which we did, but like, you know, we didn't get it automatically, right? We had to actually come up with those on our own. I feel like, it's, it is the case that to, to kind of to employ this strategy, I think you have to be already good at the thing you're hiring for. So I wouldn't know the first thing about how to hire a sales team, for instance. I've talked to people that have used work sample techniques to hire salespeople, but I could not do it um, because I wouldn't know what the challenges would look like, right? But for AWS security, for instance, I think our team has a pretty good idea of how to do AWS security well. So it was pretty straightforward. It took us about a week to come up with an AWS challenge, right? And then in terms of how many, if we were gonna hire 100 people rather than a couple of people through that challenge process, like there might be a couple of things we do differently. We might randomize more things and make it you know, harder to record the results from it and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, I think, you know, it's much more automated than doing phone screens than actual interviews. Um, so what was death to, these, to, to scaling these processes is actually getting people that are smart enough to make reasonably decent decisions about candidates, getting those people to sit down for interviews again and again and again with candidates. That's what really takes a lot of time. So the more you can front load that and make that you know something the candidate does on their couch as opposed to in your conference room, I think the more scalable your process is going to end up being. Have you ever run into the situation where someone says, I'm not doing this challenge, I'm not doing free work? Because a lot of companies provide these challenges, like, how would you go, like, let's say I'm hiring a marketer, how would you go about building a marketing plan for my appearance at RSA? And these people are saying, why should I build a marketing plan for you for free? Have you run into that in, in, in that realm in the security space? Yeah, I have a bunch of answers for that, right? So the first thing is like the thing you just described where you're talking to a marketing person, you're asking them to build up a mark like build up an outline, a marketing program for your RSA presentation. Well, there's like there's a notion of spec work, right? Of asking people to do an entire job and then submit the results. And if you like the results, you'll pay for it. And if you don't, you won't, right? So spec work is a problem. Asking people to do spec work um, in your you know, hiring process is even trickier. Right. So one thing you want to do is you want to make sure that you're not asking people to do spec work, right? That they're like, you can't take the results of one of these hiring challenges and then monetize them, right? I have no incentive to give you the, like, you know, to give you the challenges, you know, because I might buy the results from you, right? So that's one thing is you want to make sure that you're not, for instance, asking people to, it'd be weird to do this, right? But like to ask somebody to consult with you on a project. And then if you like how that goes, you'll hire them, right? Like that doesn't work well at all. Um, for like, a lot of people in the industry, and more so in the software development industry, which is kind of where I come from, um, a lot of people are concerned with you know challenges taking up time and like people not wanting to jump through hoops and all that. Our answer to that was like it's it is a real problem when people do challenges and then still do the standard interview, right? Like if it's I have to do I have to go through all the same crap that I had to go through before to get a job, plus you added this weird technical challenge to it. That sucks, right? So you um, did run into that. People have that concern, and the way that you address the concern is, like, first of all, you have to be real about the work sample challenges to begin with, which means that inside of your organization, you have to make decisions based on the challenges. And I would say that if there's one thing people do wrong with challenges, that's the one thing. 
right, is they give people challenges, but then they still do interviews to technically qualify people. In other words, the, the challenges don't mean anything, right? The like challenges should other... answer all those questions for you. They should answer most of the questions. They should be authoritative is the way I would put it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say that it should be difficult for an interviewer to overrule them, right? They should, like, candidates should go into the interview and, like, a lot of the details about whether they're technically qualified should basically be answered at that point. Right. If you're not doing that, if, if, if interviewers are routinely overriding the decisions that the, you know, at least about technical qualifications that, like, the, that the challenges are making, then you're not being real about it. You're just asking candidates to do extra work and your hiring process is annoying. The other answer to that is, is that if you think about what a normal interview process is for a candidate, it takes a long time, right? Like it's a full day that comes out of their schedule where they go on site in the morning and then spend the day in a conference room and interview after interview after interview. And for us, we just realized, look, we took most of the technical qualification stuff out of this process already, right? We did that with the challenges. We're really just trying to like, you know, assess whether your work style is going to work with us, whether you're presentable, whether you can speak in front of a client and that kind of stuff, right? So what we did was we just drastically cut the amount of in-person interviewing that we were doing. We still did in-person interviewing. I don't think that you can get away entirely from actually interviewing candidates, but we cut it more than in half so that you could do our entire interview process in the morning. And then our pitch is basically like, look, you can come here and spend a whole day in these brutal interviews, or you can just do most of this stuff on your couch. But either way, the stuff that you're doing, like, you know, it's the same bucket of time. We're not asking for any more time. We're just changing it so that some of the time you were spending, you're spending on your couch or drinking a beer or wherever you work best when you're doing a, you know, a penetration test or whatever, right? Um, and then we also, we try to make the challenges fun. Um, like, or at least the thing we would tell candidates is, if you have fun doing this challenge, you're probably a really good fit for what we do. We're looking for people that really like doing this stuff, right? So we, you know, we, we try to make this stuff interesting too. So there's like, you know, you can see the value in it. It's valid. Um, it makes sense. It's an actual challenge to do. It's a puzzle. It's kind of, it's like a CTF, right? Um, and I think a lot of people give people crappy challenges. They give people like really boring, stupid challenges that don't mean anything. And people, I think, do have a problem doing those. Did you have to rework your challenge from candidate to candidate or was there like a base thing that, that, that did work across the board? No, I think one of the big I think one of the big advantages to doing work sample hiring is that you get empirical results over time, right? So for us, it was really important to standardize. In fact, towards the end before I left, we were standardizing not just the challenges, but the entire face-to-face in-person interview as well was scripted. Like the person who did the interview had to read the questions from a script and then write results down. The, the consultants fucking hated me for that. Like they hated me um, for, for doing that. Um, like people don't like giving scripted interviews at all. But like, you know, once you actually start looking at like, you know, a spreadsheet or a history of empirical facts that you're collecting from interviews, it's so incredibly powerful. It's like, if I can get that for interviews, I want that too. So we gave everybody the exact same, to the extent that we could, everybody got essentially the same challenges and essentially the same interviews with essentially the same questions. So we could look at like, you know, you run that for a couple of months and you look at like, you see how your new hires are doing. And you look at the ones who work out really well and you look at what their results were on the challenges and then, or on the interviews or whatever. And then you can tune over time. So you have a feedback loop. You can iterate your hiring process, which is something I think nobody does. Um, but it seems like something to be super powerful, right? Like look at the people that do really well and then tune your hiring process so you're picking up more of those people, um, which is something you can't do if you're not doing kind of standardized you know, hiring of some sort. What is a comfortable time to hire period uh, from from? the standpoint of the hirer and the target. If you can get it down to one month, is that acceptable? Is two months range okay? Where do you stand on 
What, what, what I generally tell people is that if we're trying to hit the land speed record for bringing somebody on, we can do it in two weeks, right? Like, so in that first call that I was talking about before, where we're not interviewing and just kind of talking through what our process is, we'd tell people like, you know, if you're time constrained, if you really need a response for us, we can organize things so we can get this done inside of two weeks. But we all have to work really hard to make that happen and you'll have to be extra responsive to you. So like two weeks is probably the speed record for it. And I think normal, you know, not counting the time after we make an offer and not counting salary negotiation, but from first contact to an offer um, and to a real offer, right? Um, you know, I'd say a month sounds about right for that. And that's that's comfortable for, from the target's point of view as well. They were... It seems to like fit the expectation that, that candidates have too. Or like maybe three weeks is closer to it for what a candidate wants. Um, but like... It, I feel like it'll also take you two weeks to go from first contact to an in-person interview to begin with, right? And then maybe a week after that 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 interview is kind of when people expect offers or whatever. Um, so I mean, three. So what you're saying is, if you don't if you don't get it down to within a month, you're doing something wrong, or there's a hiccup somewhere. I think it should be possible to hire people within a month. Yeah, I think a month is more than enough time if you're, you know. I, I want to hesitate because I'm, I'm. I feel like right now what I'm doing is I'm telling. And we're generalizing too. Yeah, like, I'm sure the Google people are to come back and tell me I'm insane. And when when you're doing things at Google scale, there's no way you're to get back to people in a month. That's but fine. For the, That's fine. Yeah, Let I, people respond to the podcast yeah. any way they do. But I'm I'm trying to get HR. Uh, you know, their their security hiring. Hiring is a big big issue in our industry. Every company is struggling with it. Uh, trying to get you know your input on if you're if it's taking three months it's it's definitely too long correct <laughs> yes i think, I, I think I, three months is pretty silly i think you deserve the negative glass door reviews if people are if you're taking three months to get back to a candidate i say this and i'm sure there's somebody i haven't gotten back to that's talking to us right now but like <laughs> you get to make fun of me if it's three months and we haven't gotten back to you i say you, you can make fun of me at one month at that point um is i think i think it's a reasonable threshold Using CTFs is kind of standard in the industry, using CTFs and using uh, different types of outreach to reach your different target audience. Are you, uh, are you a big fan of going outside the security industry? Or What I mean by that is go looking for talent in places that would translate perfectly to security, um, but I, they may yeah. not have had that experience. Yeah, I actively prefer going outside the industry. So after Matasano and before Latacora, the company I'm at right now, um, in the middle there, right after I left Matasano, I left Matasano to start a company called Starfighter. And Starfighter was CTF hiring as a service. We were essentially, we were a contingency recruiter um, that would, you know, find candidates through CTFs and, you know, generate profiles of candidates through CTFs. That startup didn't work out for us, but we started it because we believed so strongly that like um, there's it's kind of it's silly to look inside of this industry for talent when there's so much talent outside of it. We um we ran like I, I mentioned earlier we ran a CTF called Microcorruption, which a lot of people have seen, but I don't know how many. Microcorruption is awesome. I'm one of the people that write, wrote the code, so I'm biased. But um, but it was like a memory corruption on um, MSP microcontrollers, kind of online web-based CTF, and. What we learned from doing microcorruption was when you looked at the leaderboard of the people that did really well on that, you saw that there were like there were some you know well-known security names on the leaderboard, but there were also a ton of game programmers, which is not something that we expected. But when you think about it, like the things you have to know to be a good game programmer are very similar to things you have to know to be a good low-level systems programmer, which in turn is 
very much a lot of the core skill set of being a good software security person, right? And so, like, that was, you know, kind of a flash for us was, like, you know, game programmers are some of the worst compensated, most poorly treated developers in the industry. And if you can basically triple their salary and give them something that's equally fun to work on and get amazing talent in, like, then we should just be doing that and nothing else, right? Like, there's this huge untapped pool of crazy low-level, you know, you know, software engineering talent. Did you uh, run into Sorry any? Sorry about that. That's mine. That's all right. Did you run into any issues at all where going outside of security did not translate well to senior talent? Well, did I just lose you? Uh, no, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Right. Yeah, you're going to be able to edit this, right? Can you hear me? I'm check, check. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you clearly. Yeah, um, somebody called my phone. I'm done with your phone call. No worries. We, I'll edit this part out. But um, uh, the question is, uh, let me see how we can phrase it properly to get just kind of get the flow again. Um, so a lot of companies are doing this as well, looking outside of security for talent, but they're also finding that it's not translating well to senior talent, uh, people to fill senior positions. How, how do you... How do you do you believe it's possible to look outside the industry in non-traditional places for senior talent? And how do you figure that works? So, like, that, yeah, I think the answer is a, a kind of a conditional yes, that you can hire relatively senior talent from non-traditional outside the industry sources. But you have to kind of break down what senior means. So if you mean senior in the sense of, you know, um, could they reverse engineer and find, you know, memory corruption exploits in ring zero kernel code um, in a closed source operating system? Um, you know, like that. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone, to go, yeah. uh, someone senior to come and take ownership of an entire pen test project, for instance. Yeah. So w when we think about senior in terms of management ability or in terms of, you know, yeah, there's definitely like there's there's a, um, a there's a kind of seniority you can only get from doing the job for a while. So it, it's true that you're probably not going to you know bring in a practice manager um, from you know by finding a game programmer who really is good at systems code and has a knack for software like for software security. Like like you have to grow a practice manager. Um, th that's true, but I don't think that's where the skill shortage is, right? Like, or at least I think if you take the pressure off of technical qualification, um, off of getting good technical people in, um, that it's easy to take people that have a background doing the work you have and make them kind of practice leaders while you grow that talent internally. Um, so yeah, I think for hiring management, I think we'd be more concerned about, you know, industry experience and background understanding that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not like, we don't hire those kinds of people all that often. Um, so, and well, I think when we think about the skill shortage, I think we really do mean that we feel like there's a skills shortage. So, um, that, that'd be my response, right? But I think that in my field, in software security, when we think about seniority, a lot of what we're thinking about is whether we realize it or not, what we're really coding for is, you know, ability to do the highest status technical projects, right? Like the people that can really deliver, um, ridiculously good-looking results for your most important clients, that is an ability I think you can hire outside the industry for. I don't think you can get a practice manager doing that, but I think you can get like high-status, serious you know, engineering from outside the community. You started off this podcast by somewhat maybe doubting that we have a skills shortage. So let me ask you directly, is there a, a skills shortage in cybersecurity? 
I don't think so. I think we have a, you know, I think we have a shortage of recruiting talent in cybersecurity. I don't think that there's a shortage of underlying talent. Uh, do you see in your experience a lot of uh, graduates coming out of university ready to enter the workforce on security teams? Yes. Um, I mean, so I, I qualify that by saying I, I don't think we spend a lot of time trying to recruit from cybersecurity programs at universities. So if you're asking me whether graduates of any particular cybersecurity program are ready to be drop in, you know, application security consultants or whatever. I, I might have a more qualified answer there, um, but if I take computer science at large, if I take the whole discipline of computer science, like people that went to school to be programmers, um, and then think about whether I can get enough candidates from that pool to do software security work, then yes, my answer is de definitely our experience was talking to people that had never had professional jobs before and had never seriously done software security work before, um, and then giving them software security challenges um, and then talking to the people that really enjoyed doing those software security challenges, did well on them, interviewing them, and then working with them, hiring them, and then working with them. Our experience was that those people performed as well as the best candidates that we hired from anywhere else. So um, my take is, yeah, fresh out of school, just fine. Well, I, I, think you go, I think you go further than that, by the way. I think, like, you know, I think it's, uh, it's limiting to kind of only think about CS graduates or only think about university graduates, period. I would love to have better outreach to community colleges, um, to vocational schools, things like that. There's a bunch of those in Chicago. There's a bunch of them in New York, right? I would love to talk more. Like, I think you could find probably a lot of amazing people um, in community colleges, for instance, that we're not talking to right now. And I would bet that I would have the same experience with them as I would with CS students, right? But there's a lot of them that won't do a good job. Um, that won't qualify, just like there's a lot of CS students that won't, right? But inside that whole group, if you have a system that can filter out and find the people that are a good fit for the job for you, like if that system is valid, I think you're going to find a lot of people in those schools that are totally underserved by the way that we recruit people and by the way we evaluate credentials, but that would completely rock out on the actual job. Um, I haven't figured out a way to talk to these, like to or to find ways to kind of engage these people, but I would love to figure out a way to do that. That's really, really interesting. What about women? Women uh, and the workforce. We, we we do have a massive disparity. We're a we're a man man centric uh, industry, and I was looking at numbers as well in CS uh, CS program enrollments at uh, University of Florida. I believe it was. Uh, they put out some numbers, and uh, they were down to sixteen, seventeen percent women enrolling in programs. So obviously, it's going to be skewed. The people coming out of those programs. How do we attract more women into the industry? How do we fix this imbalance? Yeah, it's 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 a mess. So <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I'm a, I'm a pretty outspoken guy about this stuff, and this is one of the things I'm pretty outspoken about. Um, go go go! You know, com computer science as a discipline is just um, yeah, it's it's overtly misogynistic and bigoted. There's no way around it, right? Like we have we have something like nineteen percent. Um, you know, female to male participation in the industry right now. And we have all these weird rationales about how, like, well, really, women just don't like doing this work and it really engages something, you know, primal in the way that men engage with problem solving and all that. It's just total horseshit. It's, you, you can go look at um, graduate and postgraduate statistics in university STEM courses, right? And you'll, what you'll see is if you plot out um, you know, male-female participation in the sciences as a whole and break it down by the different subdisciplines, right? Like, 
in most of STEM, it's never, it's not really great in a lot of places, right? It's still pretty biased towards men in a lot of places. But when we say bias, we mean 60-40. We don't mean 80-20. right. Yeah, so, uh, the, I think the most telling part of this is, and it's a thing I know, I, I work in cryptography, right? My technical subfield is cryptography. I do a lot of cryptography pen testing. And so every once in a while, I go to cryptography academic events, like to, you know, cryptography conferences. And the, like, the first thing you notice, if you've gone to a lot of industry, you know, industry computing conferences, and then you go to an academic CS event, is how many women are there? Right, like it's it's really noticeable. Like there's a bunch of women in cryptography, and obviously not a bunch of women doing this work in our professional field. And if you go look at the, the actual academic statistics, it turns out like in math, participation is like 35 percent women as opposed to 19 percent. And like I do a fair bit of math to do cryptography, and I do a fair bit of software development. Right, I have a decent. I feel like I have a decent feel for how hard these things are. Right, like for the technical challenges of doing you know, abstract algebra or computing formulas for elliptic curve isogenies versus, I don't know, understanding a heap allocator, right? Like those are both hard things to do, but you cannot tell me that curve isogenies are somehow easier to do than understanding a heap allocator, right? And yet when it comes to curve isogenies, women seem to do just fine, right? But when it comes to heap allocators, only dudes can do that work, right? Clearly it's, it's totally broken. I got to be careful, though. I have no idea what the answer for this problem is, other than for dudes to stop being misogynistic, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm convicted of the idea that there is pervasive bias against women in our hiring and in our management and how we you know, evaluate employees and how we promote people. I'm convinced that it's the case. I think that resume blind hiring, that hiring for aptitude and not looking so much at resumes and background and experience can only help that stuff. I know I've talked to people that had concerns about how like women don't like, you know, competitiveness. Um, they don't like necessarily challenge framing to things. I don't know that I believe that. My partner in the Starfighter business, the CTF business, was my wife, Erin. And my wife, Erin, is also a serious technical security person, is a software security person, also a competitive roller derby person, right? Like, I don't feel like, so I have a weird, like, you know, subset of women that I interact with through her friends and all that, but they're all pretty competitive. I don't know that I buy the idea that women aren't competitive, but either way, like, not looking at resumes and backgrounds like that, I, I feel like it can only help, but I don't know that it's, like, an answer to that problem, right? Like, I, I also don't want us to be two dudes sitting on a call. Like, you know, no, like, no, no, I, I just... I just I, know, I, know. I just want to chit chat about it. I'm just uh, I'm, I'm curious for your thinking. Like, do you think yeah. this misogynistic culture also blocks young ladies from uh, enrolling in CS courses? Yeah, I, I think from because the numbers on enrollments are low. Yeah, a lot of what I've read about this stuff, like again, it's only reading. I don't have the lived experience that these people have, but I tend to give a lot of credence to the idea that it's intimidating and disempowering to apply for a field where, um, you know, the field is mostly men and you're going to be the only woman in your working environment on message boards, right? I spend an unhealthy amount of time on message boards, right? Particularly on Hacker News. And I'm pretty familiar with the message board arguments about the gender gap in, in computers. Like the, the classic immediate response to these concerns on message boards is look at nursing. Right. There are a whole lot of women in nursing and not a lot of men. So there must be some kind of intrinsic, you know, nursing aptitude thing and, and all that. And how would you feel being a dude in nursing? 
And my response is that is also a really big problem, right? Like it is, it's very problematic that there are, there isn't enough male representation in nursing. It, 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 you know, it kind of, it reduces the status, the perceived status of that field when that field is all actually incredibly important to healthcare, right? Like more and more first line healthcare in the United States needs to be done by nurse practitioners, but we, we call those people nurses and we, so we've gendered the profession and that's a problem. So yeah, I mean, I believe it. I believe it's actually hard to get into the field because it's so dominated by men. I'm I'm interested in anything that anybody is trying to do to correct that, um, but I want to be really careful and say I don't know what to do about it. You should look at some of the literature around how they're trying to get women into cooking, uh, being chefs. It's, uh, again, not a male-dominated industry, and, and I've been reading a lot of uh, uh, the same discussions. It's, it applies right. directly to what we're talking about. I want to be really careful, though, because you pointed out that, like, enrollment in these programs is also, it's not great in terms of what the male-female breakdown is. Like, I, I believe that that's the case, right? But I also, a thing I said earlier about, like, you know, doing outreach to community colleges or vocational schools or even high schools or things like that to find people, I also feel like we don't have to, like, look at the situation where, you know, not enough women have applied to CS programs and colleges Therefore, it'll be another couple of generations before that problem solves itself. Like, I don't think that I, you didn't say that, but I think it's important that we not tell ourselves that things are OK or that we should be waiting out this problem until we fix the enrollment problem before we move forward. And so in that yeah. sense, I also think that you, I know you're not saying that, but in that sense, I also think like, you know, changing the way we do hiring can address that problem, even if we don't wait for people to enroll in the right courses. And I'm also sensitive to the fact that here's two dudes on here trying to you know, talk about women's choices. So um, that, that's not what I'm doing. And, and I'm very, very sensitive to that, which segs into my next question to you. And again, it, to, to the listener, keep in mind, these are just two dudes riffing. How do we get more women at security conferences? There's so many talented women that I meet who, I don't know why they wouldn't be bothered to submit to a conference. And of course, there's, you know, code of conduct and some of the, all, all the other issues that we know. Uh, it's floating around Black Hat and DEF CON and some security conferences. Uh, but at the same time, you look at the numbers of uh, open coffee paper submissions and the numbers on women submitting, it's very, very low. So there, there, there's definitely a disconnect there. How do, we, how do we empower women? How do we bring them along? Uh, it's something I'm thinking about a lot. I, I work, I, I volunteer uh, on, a, on, on review boards for conferences and it's just so disappointing year after year to see the numbers of submissions do you think that's easily fixable is that more of a cultural thing yeah i i, I don't know um so i'm like i'm on review board for black hat and so one of the heartening things I so tell say, me would you, are the numbers skewing uh uh comfortably in the right direction there well, we just closed the CFP for 2018 Black Hat, and I actually don't know what the the aggregate numbers are. I'll say that like one comforting thing about Black Hat, apart from the fact that Black Hat has, for instance, a code of conduct and is not messing around about that stuff. Um, apart from that, I also see a lot of feedback in terms of the review board people on the tracks that I work on. I see a lot of internal interest in making sure that we're not overlooking, um, you know, contributions from women, that we're doing what we can to kind of have, you know, diverse viewpoints, especially because a lot of like, if you've gone to security conferences, a lot of the presentations you're seeing get samey anyways. So There's a much easier case to make for diversity there too, just getting different viewpoints from people and getting different experiences. But I see a lot of that in terms of reviewers looking for that. Um, I don't know what the solution is. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, 
for me, as kind of my instincts about all these things come down to marketing. I look at recruiting as a marketing problem. I look at product stuff as a marketing problem. I would look at like getting the right submissions or getting a different kind, a different like you know a different makeup of submissions kind of as a marketing problem as well. I, I would look at like how you could do direct outreach. Um, and I'd look at the way you're presenting the conference and making sure that you're not, you know, coding things to make it clear that, like, you're looking for a male audience. I'd look for, like, you know, there's a lot of, in, in our field, there's a lot of military language, a lot of, like, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are very, like, you, you can go too far with this stuff and overanalyze things, but there's a lot of stuff that's overtly coded male in our right, industry right. that we should be more careful about. I, I buy that. Like, I buy that that's something that we should look at. I also feel like a lot of that, you know, overtly, you know, masculine coding is also not very professional independent of the issue right it's just like you know this this whole kind of rock star or military or whatever and then if you look at like an academic conference like i think we should look more like a profession like an academic conference like a bunch of lawyers than like lightning bolts and you know tanks and guns and stuff right um so but that's my take i'm, I'm sure lots of people don't agree with me on that I I wish I had better ideas on how to solve that problem but i do not i i, I can only say i agree with you that it's an issue I think we can go on and on on that that specific issue. I have so many thoughts. We are up against almost an hour in, so I'll let you go. Thank you very much, Thomas. Appreciate the time. Come back and let's do it again sometime. Thanks very much, Ryan. <laughs> this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bishop Fox, the gold standard in software security testing, code reviews, and penetration testing. Visit us at bishopfox.com to learn more about the services we offer.